Okay, this is a new series from Galatians 1, verse 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet. A new series. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Galatians. Um, Why would we want to do such a thing? There is an ancient tradition in the Christian church, right from the beginning, a cycle of preaching that uh, I try to follow, and we are following right now. Typically, in the run-up to Christmas, that is in the fall, sermons emphasize God the Father, you know, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his holiness, his justice, his love. But then, of course, you get to Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, entering the world. And so, traditionally, that's when preachers preach about Jesus, God the Son, about his life and his character and his ministry, what he said and what he did, what he achieved on the cross, how he interacted with people. But then we get to Easter. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and his return to the Father, his glorification. And then the um, emphasis in the Bible shifts to the Christian church, because as Jesus promised, his Holy Spirit descends on the early apostles and forms a Christian church. And so the emphasis shifts to the Christian life. How do people behave when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, when they have the power of the Holy Spirit? How do they live? How do they deal with problems? How do they deal with each other? How do they interact with the world? And so this cycle gives you the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God Almighty, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who comes into the world meek and mild, and God the Holy Spirit, the power of God descending onto the Christian church and creating a holy people. And so that's what we're looking at. And a great place to do that is in the letters of Paul. And this is one of Paul's earliest letters. In fact, this might be, the book of Galatians, the earliest writing in the New Testament. The um, Gospels were written, although they appear in your Bible first in the New Testament, they were actually written later. They were written after the death of the apostles because the Christians wanted to record what the apostles had been teaching. Paul writes while the apostles are still alive. His letters are to churches that exist while the apostles are still alive, before the Gospels have been written down. And Galatians is probably the first of his letters. So this is quite probably, the the books themselves don't date themselves, but it's very likely this is the earliest writing in the Christian church. So let's have a look at it. Paul, an apostle, 
sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. So who is Paul? Many uh, Christians and many historians would say that after Jesus, he was the most influential of Christians because he was the one that took the gospel to the Roman Empire and threw threw the Roman Empire to the world. This is how Paul describes himself in his letter to the Philippian church. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul was a Pharisee. That means he was highly educated. He was one of the religious elite of Israel in Jerusalem. And he demonstrated his zeal by persecuting and killing Christians in the early church. Most of them were Jewish, and to the hierarchy in Jerusalem, Christianity looked like a Jewish sect that was competing for the attention of the Jewish people, and therefore it should be stamped out. And so Paul was one of those who was tasked with stamping it out, rounding uh, Jewish Christians up, bringing them back to Jerusalem for trial, killing them, torturing them, punishing them. And then something remarkable happens. And Paul actually describes it. If you go to the book of Acts in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell about Jesus' ministry. But then the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, is the history book of the Christian church. And it tells you what happened after Jesus' resurrection and glorification. And in Acts 9... This happens. As he neared Damascus on his journey, this is uh, Paul. Originally he was called Saul. And he's going to Damascus to round up Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem to be punished and to be killed. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but not, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And he stays there for a while, because the Christians are terrified of him. Saul notoriously kills and punishes Jewish Christians. But then a God appears to Ananias and tells him, despite his fear, to go to Saul. And this is what happened. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. A remarkable encounter. Saul, the persecutor, has this amazing experience on the road to Damascus. And the result is a complete transformation of his life. Three days later, he is preaching about Jesus, the one whom he sought out to persecute. He's with the disciples, the people he was trying to kill. He becomes one of them. And his life is completely turned around. Everything he does from this point on is predicated on Jesus being his Lord. And so here, the beginning of the letter to the Galatian churches, you see Paul giving his credentials. Paul, an apostle. The word means an ambassador, somebody sent with authority. Somebody who speaks in somebody else's name or brings news. Sent not from men, nor by a man. This is a supernatural authority that does not depend on any other source except Jesus. He is not asking necessarily for agreement. What he is doing is sharing the truth about Jesus, confronting the world, confronting individuals with who Jesus is, with authority. And it's their job to deal with him from that point on. Now, remarkably, Unlike every other character in the Bible that I'm aware of, we have a description of, of Paul. If you go to the book of Acts 13 and 14, it tells you all about Paul's journey around Galatia. Galatia is the middle of Turkey, what is today Turkey. There are several cities, and Paul spent a number of years going to the different cities in Turkey, planting churches. And we know that he started at Antioch, and then he went to Iconium, and from Iconium he went to Lystra. This is all in the book of Acts. An early Christian writer, Onesphorus, writes about his encounter with Paul. Now, this isn't in the Bible, so it doesn't have biblical authority, but there's no reason to think he was lying about this. You know, there are a lot of Christian disciples back then. A lot of them wrote down stuff that they had seen and heard. And this is what he says. So he's waiting for Paul to come from Iconium to Lystra in Galatia. Onesphorus went along the road to Lystra and stood waiting for Paul. And he kept looking at the passers-by, according to the description of Titus. And he saw Paul coming, a man small in size, bull-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting, rather long-nosed, full of grace. Sometimes he seemed like a man, 
and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. There's our Paul, striding boldly into Galatia to bring the gospel to new cities, one by one. Let's continue with our passage. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul spent years in Turkey, and he had a strategy. This is how Paul spread the gospel around the Roman Empire. He was a Jew. He would oftentimes go to the synagogue, but some synagogues didn't let him in. So sometimes he would go to the, uh, the square, to the market square, and he would stand up, and he would start telling people about Jesus. And of course, many people did not respond, but some did. And the people who gathered regularly, he would then take to some friend's house, and he would begin to teach them more specifically and personally in depth. And he would form what we would call a fellowship group. And they would pray, and they would worship, and they would study together and listen to Paul, and he would turn them into a church. And as soon as Paul had a church, and he had established leaders of the church, he would move on to the next city. And so Paul left behind him, around the Mediterranean in the, in the Roman Empire, a series of church plants. He planted them in the capital cities, and then people from those churches would go into the countryside, into the small towns and villages, and they would start other churches. And that is how the Christian church began. But of course, these churches, they faced problems, they faced challenges, and they'd write letters to Paul. How do we deal with this situation? This is happening in our church, what should we do? This is what our neighbors are saying, how should we respond? So they would send letters to him, and he would send letters in return. And those letters are the bulk of what we have in the New Testament. He sends letters to the Roman church, and to the Corinthian church, to all the churches in Galatia, to the church in Ephesus. He sends personal letters to some of the leaders, to Titus and to Timothy. And so what we have in the New Testament are Paul the pastor sending pastoral letters to his different congregations, helping them deal with problems, deal with controversies, clarifying points of Christian practice. And so the letters are an amazing place to go to if you, if we, are struggling. Because they are about how we should live. How people solve problems when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. How they solve controversies. How do they deal with difficult situations? How do they celebrate? How do they worship? He writes letters about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you want to know how to be a Christian, you go to Paul. Because that's what his letters and his ministry were all about. The trouble is, Paul was a very smart man. And the density, the theological density of his words is sometimes a little overwhelming. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple enough, right? 
Most people just skip over this. This is part of the, the greeting. Let's get to the meat of this letter. Paul writes this verse, this sentence, at the start of every single letter that he ever wrote. Every the one that we have has this in it. And look at what these words mean. You can consider each one word by word, and they are filled with hope. They are filled with promise. They are filled with the answers that we need in our daily life. Grace and peace. God has graciously, that means freely, without any condition, given us peace. Peace between us and him. Peace between each other. We celebrate that, by the way, we just did, when we offered the peace to each other. If you look at the world, you realize that you cannot take peace for granted. And the fact that we are at peace with each other is an amazing gift. I mean, if you had peace on just an ordinary busy day of your life, think how much of a relief that would be. If you had peace in one of your important relationships with someone, no conflict, how wonderful would that be to that relationship? If you had peace for a lifetime, no wars, no conflict, nobody in your family killed or displaced, you consider that an amazing life, a gift. But what does Paul say that Christ gives us? Peace for all time. Because we are given peace with our Creator, Maker of heaven and earth. Is there anything more wonderful Anything more extraordinary that you could hear? That you can rest in an eternal peace for the rest of your existence. And yet, oftentimes we just skip over this as an introduction. Grace and peace to you from God. This is a personal gift. This isn't some general proclamation. It is an individual, personal gift, guaranteed by God, to you and to me, if we are willing to claim it. God, who is no longer this distant, overpowering, scary, fearsome God, a God who is now our Father. It's the reason Jesus, in this first petition of his prayer, reminds us to be grateful for that. Then instead of God, distant creator of heaven and earth, unapproachable, holy, and perfect, we have someone that we can bring the smallest detail to, as a child might bring to her father. An incredible intimacy. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, now, not Jesus Christ, meek and mild, subject to death on a cross, subject to Roman punishment, now Lord, on the throne of heaven, almighty, all-powerful. Imagine your best friend from childhood suddenly became president. And he calls you up and he said, I want to hang out. I'm going to send Air Force One to pick you up. And imagine you're waiting there at the airport. You know, you see Air Force One flying in. 
Imagine the expectation and the excitement you would have, the sense of moment and occasion and privilege. Would there be any worry in your mind at that point? Or would your mind be filled with Air Force One and the President? The President of the United States is a powerful man. He is not creator of heaven and earth. He is not Lord of all. Paul right here reminds us that we have access to the throne. And if that is true, why do we worry about anything? You know, one of the things I've learned is, as a pastor, most of my job, and it works on me too, is just reminding people of God's promises. Reminding them of the gifts that he's given them. Reminding them of what God has already done in their life. There's no new great insight that we need in order to to live lives of peace and grace, a peace that transcends understanding. So much of it is just remembering what we already know, believing it, so that it becomes true and powerful in our life. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see how his preaching, his uh, letter, his greeting, is really a kind of prayer. It's an act of worship. It's so rich. How do you receive this gift of grace and peace, the faith and new life that Paul experienced. Well, remember what happened to him. Paul was walking, he was riding to Damascus, and there was a flash of light, and he falls from his horse, and he's struck blind, and Jesus speaks to him directly. Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. What did Paul experience? He experienced forgiveness. He experienced grace. He encountered the one who he had been persecuting and whose people he had been persecuting and killing who would be willing to forgive him and give him a new life. And it changed him. It gave him a new life. After this, Paul, instead of remaining with the elites and the privileges that he had in Jerusalem, he started to travel the world. Traveled all around Rome. Traveled all around the Roman Empire. Traveled to distant places among strange people. Became the greatest Christian missionary there's ever been, had a whole new purpose to his life. He decided, by the way, that his ministry would be to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jews of the known world. A huge task, which he went after for the rest of his life. Became a new person with a new identity. He was called Saul. 
That's why that is the Jewish name, the Hebrew name that he was given by his parents when he was born in Tarsus. But Paul's father was a Roman citizen. And so he also had a Latin name, Paul. And when Saul made a commitment to bring the gospel to Gentiles, he changed his name, took on this new identity so he would be easier to approach. Took on a Latin name, took on the identity of a Roman citizen, and traveled around the Roman Empire. What had he experienced? He tells us in his letter to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I, was, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He experienced that grace, that forgiveness, and it melted his heart and turned his life around and gave him this new identity. He goes on. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul, as a Pharisee, passionately believed, as most religious people do believe, and when I say religious, I mean people who practice the externals of belief. He believed that he could show his zeal and his faithfulness and his love for God by going into the world and identifying the bad people, the people who did not believe in that God, and hunting them down, and persecuting them, and killing them. That's how he, as a Pharisee, saw his role. Identify the bad people, hunt them down, and kill them. And that's going to solve all the problems. And if you look into the world, that's what most people do. We're the good guys. Those people over there are the bad guys. If we could just get rid of them, everything would be great. But what does he find in Jesus? He finds completely the opposite. He finds in Jesus a God who does not require people to be killed on his behalf, but rather is willing to sacrifice himself on people's behalf, even those who deny him, even those who persecute him, persecute his believers, even those who kill him and kill those who believe in him. And that switch was what Paul saw. There is no such thing as good guys and bad guys. The Christian gospel is that we are all sinful. We all fall short. None of us can claim God's love by right. It can only be given 
graciously. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. A lot of people, when they read that, they think, you know, he, that's hyperbole. That he's just trying to show that even though he's this wonderful Christian leader, that he is modest. That is not it at all. You cannot be a successful Christian unless you believe that. Unless you believe that you are the problem. And that it is only God's grace that can give you life and hope. So what are we going to do with this? Well, the purpose of this series is going to be to look at um, Galatians, one of Paul's pastoral letters, to all the churches in Galatia, and see what the Christian life looks like. See how Christians are expected to behave and what they're meant to do. But most of it is just unpacking what Paul has already said. That we are sinners who have been saved by an amazing God who graciously is willing to offer his son in exchange for us. And it will, all people's problems occur when they stop believing that. When they fill their life with lies about God or false truths from other places. So much of what a Christian church is, is just reminding each other of what we already know. Speaking the truth into the confusion and darkness of our circumstance. Pointing again and again to Christ's goodness. That's what it means to be a pastor. That's what it means when the Bible talks about the priesthood of believers. Everyone taking care of each other. Reminding each other who we worship and what he's done and what that means for our future. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through Galatians. It's a short letter. I encourage you to read ahead. It's filled with amazing stuff, so there's no excuse. We're going to look at it this summer. I encourage everyone to read it. There are passages, there are perhaps whole chapters or even the whole letter that you might consider memorizing. And then the truth will be available to you for the rest of your life, no matter what happens. Anyway, we've begun. And we will continue next Sunday. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of grace and peace. We thank you for the gift of new life, a new identity, a new purpose. As we together read through this letter, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal more to us, that you would reveal truth, to us, that you would melt our hearts afresh and renew our spirits. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.